PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for Volume 88, October 2008. This month's research reports focus on exercise therapy for knee osteoarthritis, reflex activity in children with cerebral palsy, computerized visual feedback in robotic-assisted gait training, gait variability in older adults, what caring means to novice physical therapists, effect of kilohertz frequency alternating currents on strength of contraction, muscle fatigue, and perceived discomfort, in vitro optimization of dexamethasone phosphate delivery by iontophoresis, and assessment of oxygen consumption after stroke. We also feature two case reports in October, a first-of-its-kind case on the use of gaming technology in rehabilitation, and a case on the use of transabdominal ultrasound imaging in retraining the pelvic floor muscles of a postpartum woman. This year, PTJ is publishing the Mary McMillan Lecture and the Presidential Address in October rather than November. The 39th Mary McMillan Lecture titled, We Are What We Do, was given by Dr. Anthony Delito, and the 2008 APTA Presidential Address titled, Our Great Opportunity, was given by APTA President Dr. R. Scott Ward at PT 2008 Annual Conference and Exposition of the American Physical Therapy Association in San Antonio, Texas. The full text of those speeches can be found at www.ptjournal.org. First this month, Physical Therapists' Use of Therapeutic Exercise for Patients with Clinical Knee Osteoarthritis in the United Kingdom in Line with Current Recommendations by Melanie Holden, Elaine Nichols, Dr. Elaine Hay, and Dr. Nadine Foster. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. By designing and supervising exercise programs, physical therapists play an important role in the management of clinical knee osteoarthritis. This study explored whether their current use of therapeutic exercise for patients with this condition is in line with recent recommendations. A cross-sectional survey was conducted with a random sample of 2,000 licensed physical therapists practicing in the United Kingdom. This survey included a vignette describing a patient with clinical knee osteoarthritis, as well as clinical management questions relating to the respondent's use of therapeutic exercise. The questionnaire response rate was 58%, with 538 respondents stating that they had treated a patient with clinical knee osteoarthritis in the preceding six months. In line with recent recommendations, 99% of the physical therapists stated that they would use therapeutic exercise for this patient population, although strengthening exercises were favored over aerobic exercises. Although nearly all physical therapists said they would monitor exercise adherence, only 12% said they would use an exercise diary. 76% of physical therapists said they would provide up to five treatment sessions and only 34% would offer physical therapy follow-up after discharge. 
The measure of physical therapists' current clinical practice was self-reported clinical behavior on the basis of a vignette. This is a valid measure of clinical behavior. However, in practice, physical therapists may use therapeutic exercise differently. There are disparities between physical therapists' current use of therapeutic exercise for clinical knee osteoarthritis and recent recommendations. Identifying potential ways to overcome these disparities is an important step toward optimizing the outcome obtained from therapeutic exercise for patients with clinical knee osteoarthritis. Lead author Melanie Holden is the Arthritis Research Campaign Allied Health Professional Research Fellow at the Arthritis Research Campaign National Primary Care Center, Keele University in Staffordshire, United Kingdom. Next, roles of reflex activity and co-contraction during assessments of spasticity of the knee flexor and knee extensor muscles in children with cerebral palsy and different functional levels. By Dr. Samuel Pierce, Dr. Mary Barb, Dr. Ann Barr, Dr. Patricia Shawakis, and Dr. Richard Lauer. Spasticity is a common impairment in children with cerebral palsy. The purpose of this study was to examine differences in passive resistive torque, reflex activity, coactivation, and reciprocal facilitation during assessments of the spasticity of knee flexor and knee extensor muscles of children with cerebral palsy, CP, and different levels of functional ability. Study participants were 20 children with CP and 10 children with typical development. The 20 children with CP were equally divided into two groups, 10 children classified as level 1 and 10 children classified as level 3 using the Gross Motor Function Classification Scale, or GMFCS. One set of 10 passive movements between 25 and 90 degrees of knee flexion and one set of 10 passive movements between 90 and 25 degrees of knee flexion were completed with an isokinetic dynamometer at speeds of 15 degrees per second, 90 degrees per second, and 180 degrees per second. During the movements, surface electromyography was measured in the vastus lateralis and medial hamstring muscles. Children in the GMFCS Level 3 group demonstrated significantly more peak knee flexor torque with passive movements at 180 degrees per second than children with typical development. During the assessment of knee flexor spasticity at a velocity of 180 degrees per second, children in the GMFCS Level 1 and Level 3 groups demonstrated significantly more repetitions with medial hamstring muscle activity, vastus lateralis muscle activity, and co-contraction than children with typical development. Children with CP and more impaired functional mobility may demonstrate more knee flexor spasticity and reflex activity, as measured by isokinetic dynamometry, than children with typical development. However, the finding of increased reflex activity with no increase in torque in the GMFCS Level 1 group in a comparison with a typical development group suggests that reflex activity may play a less prominent role in spasticity. Lead author Dr. Samuel Pierce is research physical therapist at Shriners Hospitals for Children in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and assistant professor at the Institute for Physical Therapy Education, Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania.
Computerized Visual Feedback, an Adjunct to Robotic-Assisted Gait Training by Raphael Bantz, Dr. Mark Bollinger, Dr. Jerry Colombo, Dr. Volker Dietz, and Dr. Lars Lernenberger. Robotic devices for walking rehabilitation allow new possibilities for providing performance-related information to patients during gait training. Based on motor learning principles, augmented feedback during robotic-assisted gait training might improve the rehabilitation process used to regain walking function. This report presents a method to provide visual feedback implemented in a driven gait orthosis. The purpose of the study was to compare the immediate effect on motor output in subjects during robotic-assisted gait training when they used computerized visual feedback and when they followed verbal instructions of a physical therapist. Twelve people with neurological gait disorders due to incomplete spinal cord injury participated in the study. Subjects were instructed to walk within the driven gait orthosis in two different conditions— They were asked to increase their motor output by following the instructions of a therapist and by observing visual feedback. In addition, the subject's opinions about using visual feedback were investigated using a questionnaire. Computerized visual feedback and verbal instructions by the therapist were observed to result in a similar change in motor output in subjects when walking within the driven gait orthosis. Subjects reported that they were more motivated and concentrated on their movements when using computerized visual feedback. Motivation and concentration were lower when no form of feedback was provided. Computerized visual feedback is a valuable adjunct to robotic-assisted gait training. It represents a relevant tool to increase patients' motor output, involvement, and motivation during gait training similar to verbal instructions by a therapist. Lead author Raphael Bantz, at the time of the study, was research associate, spinal cord injury research at Belgrist University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland. Next, gait variability in older adults, observational rating validated by comparison with a computerized walkway gold standard. By Dr. Wen Ni Wenny Huang, Dr. Jesse Van Swearingen, and Dr. Jennifer Bratch. Gait variability has been measured with techniques that use computerized technology intensively, techniques that are not practical in clinical settings. The purpose of this study was to validate an observational rating of gait variability for routine clinical practice. The participants were 46 community-dwelling adults 65 years of age or older. The gold standard for gait variability was the standard deviation of stance time, stance time variability, derived from gait characteristics recorded by use of a computerized walkway. The validity of the diagnostic test evaluated in this study, an observational rating of gait variability, was determined by comparison with the quantitative measure of stance time variability. Six validity indexes were defined for the observational rating of gait variability. Sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, positive likelihood ratio, and negative likelihood ratio. An observational rating of gait variability was validated by comparison with stance time variability derived from a computerized walkway.
The concurrent validity of the two methods of determining gait variability provides support for the use of the observational rating as an alternative measure of gait variability for the purpose of identifying older adults at risk for mobility disability in clinical settings. Lead author Dr. Wen Ni Wenyi Huang is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Yishou University in Taiwan, Republic of China. Next, meaning of caring to seven novice physical therapists during their first year of clinical practice by Dr. Bruce Greenfield, Dr. Adam Anderson, Dr. Brittany Cox, and Dr. Michelle Coriel Tanner. Caring has been identified as a rules-based approach to good patient care, as a core value in physical therapist professional behavior, as a part of experienced and expert practice, as a virtue, and as a moral orientation. Previous research showed that experienced and expert female physical therapists value compassion and caring in clinical practice. However, little is known about how novice physical therapists care for their patients. The purpose of this study was to explore the meaning of caring from the perspectives of novice physical therapists. The subjects were seven novice physical therapists with less than one year of clinical experience who were working in either an outpatient or an inpatient facility. A qualitative method called phenomenology was used. Data were obtained from retrospective interviews of the novice physical therapists regarding their experiences in the clinic. Three common themes emerged. One, learning to care, a theme that included the following subthemes: barriers to caring, the difficult patient, finding a balance, and time constraints. Two, patients as subjects, and three, the culture of the clinic. The novice physical therapists in this study expressed difficulty in dealing with difficult patients, with time management, and with balancing their professional and personal lives. However, despite the barriers to caring, many of these participants viewed caring not just as a rules-based approach, but as a core value, and in some cases, a moral orientation that guided their first year of clinical practice. The findings suggest that first. Caring requires certain skills and attitudes that accrue over time, and second, in order to prepare students for the first-year transition in the clinic, physical therapist education programs should integrate learning experiences that foster caring behaviors, including clinical experiences, throughout the curriculum. In addition, experienced clinicians should appreciate how their clinic's culture and their behaviors can help model caring attitudes in novice physical therapists. Lead author Dr. Bruce Greenfield is assistant professor in the Division of Physical Therapy, Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Effective burst frequency and duration of kilohertz frequency alternating currents and of low frequency pulsed currents on strength of contraction, muscle fatigue, and perceived discomfort, by Dr. Yochaved Laffer and Michael Elboim. Low frequency pulsed currents and kilohertz frequency alternating currents are used clinically to augment muscle contractions. Treatment effectiveness may be enhanced by selecting stimulation parameters that evoke the strongest contractions with minimal discomfort and fatigue. 
The objective of this study was to compare the maximally induced strength of contractions, muscle fatigue, and discomfort associated with a low-frequency pulsed current and with three kilohertz frequency alternating currents that differed in frequency and duration of burst modulation. This was a repeated measures trial with randomized order of current presentation conducted in the physical therapy laboratory at the University of Haifa. The participants were 26 volunteers without impairments with an average age of 27 years. All currents were applied in separate sessions to the wrist extensors of each subject. Currents consisted of a low-frequency pulsed current with a 50 Hz pulse frequency and 3 kHz frequency alternating currents with a 2.5 kHz carrier frequency. The 3 kHz frequency alternating currents included the Russian current, which was burst modulated at 50 Hz with 25 cycles per burst, and two currents that were burst modulated at 20 or 50 Hz with 10 cycles per burst. The following were recorded. The maximal electrically induced isometric force, the force integral of 21 electrically induced consecutive contractions, and the degree of discomfort force of contraction was not affected by type of current. The low-frequency pulsed current was least fatiguing and the Russian current was most fatiguing, with the two other kilohertz frequency alternating currents having an intermediate effect. Degree of discomfort was higher with the kilohertz frequency alternating currents that were modulated at 20 hertz. When comfort, strength, and fatigue are considered jointly, the low-frequency pulsed current is advantageous. Electrically induced fatigue is affected by the number of cycles per second rather than by the number of bursts per second. Lead author Dr. Yachafed Lofer is a faculty member in the physical therapy department at the University of Haifa in Haifa, Israel. Next, in vitro optimization of dexamethasone phosphate delivery by iontophoresis by Dr. Jean-Philippe Silvestre, Dr. Richard Guy, and Dr. M. Begonia Delgado-Charro. This study was designed to evaluate the effects of competing ions and electroosmosis on the transdermal iontophoresis of dexamethasone phosphate, or DEXFOS for short, and to identify the optimal conditions for its delivery. The experiments were performed using pig skin in side-by-side -side diffusion cells. A constant 0.3 milliampere current was passed through silver-silver chloride electrodes. Dexfos transport was quantified for donor solutions containing different drug concentrations, with and without a background electrolyte. Electrotransport of co-ion citrate and the counter-ions sodium and potassium also was quantified. The contribution of electroosmosis was evaluated by measuring the transport of the neutral marker mannitol. Electromigration was the dominant mechanism of drug iontophoresis and reduction in electroosmotic flow directed against the cathodic delivery of dexfos did not improve drug delivery. The dexfos flux from the cathode was found to be optimal when the background electrolyte was excluded from the formulation. In this case, transport of the drug is limited principally by the competition with counter ions, mainly sodium, and the mobility of the drug in the membrane. Dexamethasone phosphate must be delivered from the cathode and formulated rationally, excluding mobile co-anions, to achieve optimal iontophoretic delivery. Lead author Dr. Jean-Philippe Silvestre is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology at the University of Bath, 
in Bath, United Kingdom. Next, modified total body recumbent stepper exercise test for assessing peak oxygen consumption in people with chronic stroke by Sandra Billinger, Benjamin Singh, and Dr. Patricia Cluding. Assessment of peak oxygen consumption using traditional modes of testing such as treadmill or cycle ergometer can be difficult in individuals with stroke due to balance deficits, gait impairments, or decreased coordination. The purpose of this study was to quantitatively assess the validity and feasibility of a modified exercise test using a total body recumbent stepper in individuals after stroke. A within-subject design with a sample of convenience was used. Eleven participants completed the study. Their mean time after stroke was 40 months. Their mean age was 61 years, and they had mild to severe lower extremity Fugelmeyer test scores. The participants performed two maximal effort graded exercise tests on separate days using the total body recumbent stepper and a cycle ergometer exercise protocol to assess cardiorespiratory fitness. Measurements of peak oxygen consumption and peak heart rate were obtained during both tests. A strong relationship existed between the total body recumbent stepper and the cycle ergometer exercise test for peak oxygen consumption and peak heart rate. Mean peak oxygen consumption was significantly higher for total body recumbent stepper compared with the cycle ergometer exercise protocol. All participants performed the total body recumbent stepper. One individual with severe stroke was unable to pedal the cycle ergometer. No significant adverse events occurred. The total body recumbent stepper may be a safe, feasible, and valid exercise test to obtain measurements of peak oxygen consumption in people with stroke. Healthcare professionals may use the total body recumbent stepper to prescribe aerobic exercise based on peak oxygen consumption values for individuals with mild to severe deficits after stroke. A video accompanies this article online at www.ptjournal.org. The video shows an individual with chronic stroke attempting to mount and pedal the cycle ergometer and the same individual transferring to the total body recumbent stepper. Lead author Sandra Billinger is a PhD candidate and clinical instructor in the Metabolic Strength and Energy Lab, Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. Finally, this month, we have two case reports. First, use of a low-cost, commercially available gaming console, Wii, for rehabilitation of an adolescent with cerebral palsy. By Dr. Judith Deutsch, Megan Borbelli, Ginny Filler, Karen Hun, and Phyllis Guarrera-Bolby. The purpose of this retrospective and prospective case report is to describe the feasibility and outcomes of using a low-cost, commercially available gaming system known as the Wii to augment the rehabilitation of an adolescent with cerebral palsy, CP. The patient was an adolescent with spastic diplegic CP who was classified as Level 3 by the Gross Motor Function Classification Scale and was treated during a summer session in a school-based setting. The patient participated in 11 training sessions, two of which included other players. Sessions were between 60 and 90 minutes in duration. 
Training was performed using the Wii Sports Games software, including boxing, tennis, bowling, and golf. The patient trained in both standing and sitting positions. Three main outcome measures were used. One, visual perceptual processing using a motor-free perceptual test. Two, postural control using weight distribution and sway measures. And three, functional mobility using gait distance. Improvements in visual perceptual processing, postural control, and functional mobility were measured after training. The feasibility of using the system in the school-based setting during the summer session was supported. For this patient, whose rehabilitation was augmented with the Wii, there were positive outcomes at the impairment and functional levels. Multiple hypotheses were proposed for these findings, which may be the springboard for additional research. To the author's knowledge, this is the first published report on using this particular low-cost, commercially available gaming technology for rehabilitation of a person with CP. Lead author Dr. Judith Deutsch is professor and director of the Rivers Lab of the Doctoral Programs in Physical Therapy in the Department of Rehabilitation and Movement Science, School of Health-Related Professions, at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in Newark, New Jersey. Next, use of transabdominal ultrasound imaging in retraining the pelvic floor muscles of a woman postpartum by Dr. Allison Ariel, Dr. Trace Sears, and Elizabeth Hampton. Postpartum stress urinary incontinence often compromises a woman's ability to participate in normal daily routines or physical activities. Pelvic floor muscle training has been shown to be effective in improving urinary incontinence. Transabdominal ultrasound imaging is a new, non-invasive method for assessing the function of the pelvic floor muscles. This case report describes the use of transabdominal ultrasound imaging in the strengthening of a patient's pelvic floor muscles. The patient was a 29-year-old woman who had stress urinary incontinence with high-impact activities following a history of two vaginal deliveries, one of which had resulted in a grade 3 perineal laceration. Intervention included pelvic floor muscle training with the use of transabdominal ultrasound imaging. A one-year follow-up examination was performed to assess the long-term functional outcomes. The patient's ability to maintain a pelvic floor muscle contraction during motor tasks was documented throughout the course of the treatment to demonstrate her gain in pelvic floor muscle control. The patient gained strength in her pelvic floor muscles, enabling her to maintain a contraction during various motor tasks. She was able to return to a running program with no symptoms of stress urinary incontinence. Her satisfaction level was high at one year. The use of transabdominal ultrasound imaging was a helpful assessment and biofeedback tool for re-education and rehabilitation of the pelvic floor muscles for this patient. Lead author Dr. Allison Ariel is Senior Physical Therapist in the Rehabilitation Department at United General Hospital in Cedro Willey, Washington. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626 Five nine three seven eight two five. Thanks for listening.